Hello and very welcome to the Veto Cast. Uh, we are back once more, following uh, this time two vetoes cast by the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China, respectively, on uh, February 28th of this year, 2019. And with me today to analyze these uh, vetoes is uh, our new guest, Oskar Sjöstedt of the United Nations uh, Association of Sweden. He used to previously work with issues relating to Sweden's time in the Security Council, uh, which is also why he is here today. So welcome to the show. Oscar. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And uh, since we have Oscar with us, uh, we thought that we should begin with doing a bit of a deep dive into the recently finished Swedish term on the Security Council and uh, do this as sort of a case study of a non-permanent member's uh, term on the council. Uh, so let's start with that. So Oscar, Sweden was elected uh, for a two-year term on the council, uh, perhaps a bit surprisingly to the casual observer. What has been the main goals uh, in the council of the Swedish government uh, during uh, these past two years? Um, yeah, it might have been a bit surprising to some people that Sweden was elected to the council. Uh, however, looking at uh, Sweden's his, uh, historical relationship to the UN and keeping in mind also other UN member states' perception of Sweden, it shouldn't come as a huge surprise. Uh, Sweden is and has been for a very long time a considerable player within the UN system, uh, even though Sweden is a rather small country, contributed with large sums of money uh, to the UN system for a long time. And we have also had several influential uh, individuals within the UN system that is closely related to, to the whole UN uh, system. I'm thinking primarily of Dag Hammarskjöld, but also Hans Blixt and uh, Stefan de Mestura. And also now very recently we have Rika Modier, who was, uh, got a, posi- a really high position at, at the UNDP, the UN Development Program. Uh, so I, I would argue that Sweden is a rather influential player within the UN. Uh, and I think you could see that when, when the election to the Security Council was held uh, in two, 2016. Sweden competed with Italy and the Netherlands, and there were two seats available, so three countries, two seats. And Sweden was the only country of these three who got enough votes, and that is two-thirds of the General Assembly, on the first um, round of votes. So Sweden got elected on the first round, and Italy and Holland, they struggled on for, I think it was four rounds, and they still didn't manage to get enough uh, votes to get a seat on the council. So they actually ended up splitting the seats between them, so one, one year each. And, and some people, they have argued that this is because Sweden had such an expensive uh, Security Council campaign and to get on the Security Council. Uh, but I would disagree on, on that point. E- even though you can criticize the campaign for many things, um, it was still much less expensive than, than Holland and, and Italy's campaign. So um, what I'm trying to say with this is that I'm pretty sure Sweden got elected because Sweden is viewed as a as a rather legitimate and respected UN member state, and not because of the campaign. But I'm gonna uh, get back to your questions about the main goals. So Sweden did not put forward any concrete goals in terms of ending a specific conflict. Um, this might have have to do with that the Security uh, Council has a very agenda, event-driven agenda. However, Sweden decided to develop a baseline for the Swedish membership 
and that is several core values that Sweden wanted to work with in the council. So Sweden wanted all of its work, and this is something that Sweden developed before they, they got the seat in the, or when they got the seat before they entered the council. So Sweden wanted all of its work in the council to be rooted in a respect for international law, human rights, gender equality, and have a humanitarian perspective. And this might sound a bit fluffy, but if I put it in more concrete terms, for example, gender equality, it's about that no gender should be discriminated against in the council and not by any decisions taken by the council. And, and a humanitarian perspective can be viewed as um, kind of highlighting the importance of protecting civilians and also looking to the needs of, of civilians and not just high officials in uh, like, you know, government officials. And derived from this baseline, these core values, it has become clear uh, during the Swedish membership that uh, Sweden chose to prioritize mainly three key, three key topics in the council. And these three topics were uh, the work with including women in peace processes, conflict prevention, and making uh, the council more transparent. So even though Sweden didn't have any concrete goals, like ending specific conflicts, they did have this baseline, and during the member during the two-year membership, it became rather clear what what Sweden prioritized. Do you think that Sweden have lived up to those values, uh, and uh, is the work on the Security Council seen as generally successful in terms of Sweden's participation? Yeah, I I would say that that the overall perception by both Swedish and international civil society organization organizations but also by a majority of, of UN member states, is that Sweden has done a good job in the council, especially concerning the circumstances with uh, leaders like Trump and, and Putin making the work in the in multilateral organizations kind of tough. But of course, everyone doesn't view the, the, the work, the Swedish work in the council as a success. Um, you have the, the members of the domestic and the, oppos- the domestic uh, political opposition in Sweden during the two years that have been a bit critical. You also have several nation states that are very critical of what Sweden did in the council, mainly because they kind of, yeah, exposed their human rights abuses in 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 some instances. Um, but of course, also even a lot of civil society organizations, such as my own, uh, the United Nations Association of Sweden. We don't think that everything they did was perfect. We have we we definitely see some some room room for improvement. But if you want, I can I can talk a bit about what Sweden has done in the council, but also what Sweden didn't do. And listeners can kind of you know draw their own conclusions about if if the Swedish work if the Swedish work in the council has been a success or if it's been a failure or something more more in the middle. I'm gonna start briefly with what I would consider to be like the main priority for Sweden in the Security Council. And that that has been to work with women, peace and security. That is kind of gender equality, but they call it women, peace and security in the council. And although resolutions about women, peace and security have existed since the year 2000, when, when the kind of groundbreaking resolution 1325 came about, which was the first resolution ever to talk about women as actors in, in peace processes and not just victims. Even though they have been around now for, for a long time, the degree to which these resolutions have been implemented uh, has been rather low. And Sweden uh, wanted to change this 
And they worked uh, really hard, I would say, to live up to what has been written in, in earlier resolutions on, on this topic. So Sweden has been doing this in a number of ways, but, but most notably has been the work to make sure that writings about the participation of women in peace processes uh, are included in resolutions and statements that the council produced during the two years Sweden was in the council. Uh, Sweden brought up this topic very stubbornly and sometimes not even willing to let discussions continue without the recognition that the, this needs to be included in resolutions and statements. Sweden also tried to give women greater access, access to the council, for example, by inviting women to brief the council to a higher extent than what uh, other member states usually do. So, uh, for example, Sweden's presidency, so council presidency, in, in July 2018 was the first time ever that there were as many women as men who briefed brief the council. And some people say like, oh, Sweden, do they always want 50% men, 50% women? And I would say like, no, that's not really the goal. But, but like the balance skewed right now, that's uh, that you really need like something a bit a bit radical to kind of make it, make it right. And Sweden has also uh, highlighted the, the special needs for women and girls in, in conflict areas. For example, the alarming frequency that gender-based violence occur in conflict and, and the need to address it. And uh, in more concrete terms, what they have been doing is that uh, Sweden has been working hard to punish this kind of gender-based violence and, and was one of the countries that managed to push through new criteria on conflict-related sexual violence in, in, uh, in the sanction, sanctions regimes for uh, Libya, Central African Republic, and, and South Sudan. Um, and, and Sweden has to a certain extent, not a, not a huge um, extent, but a certain extent managed to change norms on this topic in, in the council. And, and, and as you might guess, it has been kind of hard opposition towards uh, talking so much about uh, gender equality in the council. Then you have the second priority that Sweden has put a lot of effort into, and that is conflict prevention. So when Sweden entered the council in 2017, the Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs released a campaign called uh, hashtag no new names. And this was to show that Sweden wanted to work uh, as efficiently uh, with, with conflict, uh, conflict prevention in the council. So no new names had to be added to the list of catastrophes that the UN has failed to prevent in the past. And, and then I'm thinking mainly about uh, uh, Srebrenica and you have Rwanda 94, but also as late as Aleppo 2016. And Sweden did this with an agenda which was called early warning, early action. And this means that the council should try to receive information, um, like quality uh, information about potential security risks in good time, but then also act on it. Because one problem with the Security Council is that sometimes the information is just piling up in New York and, and, and it isn't really used or acted upon. Sweden also arranged a high-level meeting on, on the topic of conflict prevention during its presidency in, in 2017. And, uh, and during the presidency of uh, July 2018, Sweden managed to unite the Security Council in giving support for the Secretary General's uh, special envoys for different conflicts. Um, especially this month, it was really important to give uh, support for the special envoy for Yemen and his kind of mediation efforts uh, about 
uh, yeah, it was a, a military offensive that was on, on its way towards a, a port city of Hudeida that was really um, important for humanitarian uh, aid. I'm not going to go into to details that will take so much time. But I also want to mention on the topic of conflict prevention that Sweden has brought up the link between what's called non-traditional security threats and conflict. So, for example, how climate change is linked to conflict and also how, uh, for example, starvation can be the root cause of, for conflict. And the fact that Sweden talked a lot about this and, and, and got so, some things passed on this topic might not sound very impressive to maybe especially, for example, a Swedish audience, because it's so uh, kind of established that, of course, um, climate change is affecting and, and can lead to conflict. But you have to remember then that the, the, uh, the Security Council is a very conservative forum and just talking about climate change in that forum can be, uh, it, it faces a lot of opposition. So uh, I think it's, it's, yeah, I'm glad that Sweden brought it up. The third kind of priority that Sweden put a lot of time and effort into is transparency and also inclusion, I would say, in, in the council's work. Kind of known that the Security Council is often criticized for being very uh, non-transparent and um, Sweden tried to increase the transparency and inclusion in many different ways. They worked with a met method that was about talking with countries and not about them. This might also sound like something obvious that, that the, of course, the council should kind of consult with the, the affected country or, or people or government or civil society organizations. But sadly, this hasn't always been the case. Sometimes the Security Council Think that they can make the right decisions without consulting with, with the affected uh, country. So Sweden wanted to really talk with them and not about them. And they did this in, in a number of ways. Uh, and one thing that I think was really important is that they invited a lot of representatives from civil society organizations, uh, not just uh, government uh, officials. Because kind of often in, in, in conflicts or like different crisis, countries that are in crisis, the civil society will give like a uh, sometimes a different perspective than, than the government on, on what's going on and how to solve it. Sweden also held several civil society briefings in both New York and in, in Stockholm, where they invited civil society organizations, such as my own organization, uh, United Nations Association of Sweden, and we could come there and we could ask questions and give feedback and, and get an update on, on the work in the council. And, and Sweden also, I mean, it's going to mention this really briefly, but Sweden had a weekly newsletter on their homepage, on the government homepage, where you can kind of read what, what Sweden, like the recent developments in, in the council. And this, I mean, it's kind of hard to sit and read all these meeting protocols if you don't have a lot of time. So I think it's it was a good initiative from, from the government to try to make this information more available and easy to get. And they also spread a lot of information over social media. I'm also going to just mention really briefly um, three other um, topics where I think Sweden stood out in relation to, to the other council members during its two-year term. One of these topics is the topic of children in armed conflict. The Security Council has several different working groups on different thematic issues and also geographic issues. One of them is children in armed conflict. Sweden was leading this group uh, during the whole council membership, and they had a high-level meeting on this topic led by Stefan Löfven, and it resulted in a resolution which was unanimously adopted by the council. 
uh, about protecting children and, and kind of how protecting today's children prevents tomorrow's conflict. Another thing that I also want to bro- bring up where Sweden also stood out uh, is about Syria. And this might surprise some listeners that I even bring up Syria, because as a lot of people know, Syria has been the one issue that has uh, Rose and the, the council like really made a kind of made this council of it like a paralysis uh, on this issue because there's so many different wills. But there were, I think it were told three resolutions which passed on, on Syria. And two of them were, in my opinion, really important humanitarian cross-border uh, resolutions. So they were, they were about and that the neighboring states of Syria had to keep their borders open for humanitarian aid to Syrian civilians. And uh, I am glad that these two resolutions, which are two very, very few that passed, it was Sweden and Kuwait who kind of pushed them through and and drafted them. So the Security Council's relationship to Syria has been terrible, but at least the, the small positive things um, Sweden was at least involved in it so I think that's that's positive and and the last point that I want to raise is that Sweden managed to get the Myanmar's military's uh, kind of mass killing of of uh, civilians in in Myanmar and the, the government of Myanmar they went on a killing spree of, of an ethnic minority called the Rohingyas uh, and and Sweden managed to bring this topic up on the agenda of the Security Council. It might not sound like much, but then one should know that it was really hard to even talk about this before because everyone know that China, which is a really close ally to the Myanmar military, wouldn't allow this to be kind of discussed. So Sweden did a good job at least getting it on the agenda and also made some efforts in kind of pushing for a special envoy for Myanmar and also arranged a trip to to, to kind of meet the survivors of, of this horrif- horrific uh, mass killing that we know today is uh, like had genocidal uh, intent, at least from what the UN itself has said. As you can hear, I am like generally positive to to the Swedish uh, membership in, in the council. However, there are definitely several areas where we see uh, like some room for improvement. Uh, I'm, I'm briefly gonna mention some of them, and one of them where we really think that Sweden should have done more is is actually concerning Myanmar and the, and the Rohingya situation. Because even if Sweden was the most active member of the council, very, very little has still happened for, for the almost almost one million survivors who now live live in, in neighboring country of, of Bangladesh. We tried to push Sweden hard to not just talk about referring the Myanmar military to the International Criminal Court but actually putting it to a vote, uh, something that the Swedish government did not do because they thought that that would, yeah, that China would just veto it and that China would just distance itself from anything that has to do with these uh, survivors and, and that would make the situation even worse. And and there is definitely some, some like legit points there, but the problem is that there is almost nothing that the Security Council can do for these survivors that wouldn't meet really strong criticism, most likely a veto or or something like that from China. So other examples, what we thought Sweden should should have done is to much more be a bit bolder about demanding unfettered access for the UNHCR, so the UN Refugee Agency, 
to, to the areas where survivors are supposed to return. Also demand that there should be military observers in the resettlement camps. So, so you can kind of prevent that this um, kind of mass killing repeats itself. And also, of course, an, an arms embargo towards the, the military. We also think that Sweden should have done more uh, concerning the war in Yemen. So Sweden did actually a lot uh, more than other countries on Yemen. But the problem is that we would like to have seen that Sweden would have pushed the United Kingdom harder on this question. And the reason I say the United Kingdom is that the United Kingdom is what's called a penholder for, for the conflict in Yemen. And what a penholder is, is that the penholder uh, is the one country that kind of takes initiative on, on a certain topic. And, and the UK is the penholder for Yemen. And as the UK it still is both biased in this question, but also very inactive, we would have liked to see that Sweden would have raised the question of switching the pen to another country, not necessarily Sweden, but a country that is less biased and, and not that inactive. I'm going to, yeah, also, of course, um, we would like them to complain louder when our veto is put forward, but I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into that later. And also, we would like them to talk a bit more about the responsibility to protect and remind states that they actually have the responsibility to protect their own population against the worst atrocity crimes, and also work a bit harder for a reformation of the UN peacekeeping operations. All right. And, and since we're talking about, and since you mentioned the veto, how has Sweden, if, if at all, how has Sweden worked with, uh, with the video issue on the council? It kind of saddens me to say that working to limit the use of the veto has not been a key priority for, for Sweden during the two-year term. Sweden has expressed support uh, before for the two main initiatives to limit the veto, so the Act Code of Conduct and the French-Mexican Initiative. But in terms of concrete action for limiting the use of the veto, uh, Sweden hasn't been very active. And I think that Sweden viewed this issue of the veto and how to limit it as something that is very hard to achieve and something that could take up a lot of time and might not lead to any results, uh, as the US, Russia and China especially are, are very keen on, on keeping it the way it is. So I think that Sweden chose different priorities uh, where the chance of success and, and kind of progress were seen to be better. And this is, I think this is also has to do a bit with domestic politics as well, that Sweden didn't want to exit the council and say like, oh, we didn't achieve anything with the veto. And if they put like a lot of time and effort on it, that would be considered to be a kind of failed uh, membership of the, of the Security Council. But I am, I would say from my point of view, I am really disappointed that Sweden didn't do more about the veto. Uh, what they could have done to a much, much more without spending too much time on it is to rally more member states to support the two initiatives, the French-Mexican initiative and the Act Code of Conduct. And also, more primarily, Benavido uh, was put forward. Sweden should also have criticized it much more loudly and not just say that they are kind of troubled that a veto was put forward and uh, without mentioning any names. I think it's it's time to mention names and point fingers. And also to ask the permanent members to show how their veto uh, very in line with upholding international peace and security, which is the primary responsibility of the Security Council. Because this would have been really hard very often for the for the permanent members to to show how this was in line with upholding peace and peace and security. Yeah, no, like, like I said, it, it saddens me to say that um, not I haven't 
this has not been a key priority, unfortunately. Well, thank you. And uh, so let's now move on to the most recent videos, uh, which is the primary reason to why we do this podcast. But before we get into the the actual consequences of the videos, I think it's uh, a good idea to look at the basics. So uh, these videos, there were two of them, were cast to stop draft resolution S slash 2019 slash 186. And this was presented to the council by the United States and was a response to the political situation in Venezuela. And the draft resolution included a number of, of statements really regarding Venezuela's uh, democracy primarily. But in the, uh, the draft resolution itself required no further substantial action on behalf of the UN or, or the international community for that matter. So, Oscar, seeing that this draft resolution is not requiring any real action uh, on the part of the UN or the international community, other than making statements uh, about the situation in Venezuela. Why, in your view, is both Russia and China concerned enough with uh, the, the contents of this draft resolution to, in their view, then warrant a, a veto against it? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Firstly, I just want to say that, uh, so the audience know that um, I have a, a new position at, at the Swedish UNA. So I haven't been working with the Security Council for for like two months. So I'm not uh, an expert on on the on the two latest videos, but but I have an, a general uh, understanding of, of why they were used. So I had a look at the U.S. draft resolution uh, and what China Russia uh, reacted on, as I have understood it, was the part. And that states that the 2018 presidential elections in Venezuela were neither free nor fair, and the call for new elections in Venezuela. And these were kind of like the critical issues of, of the draft resolutions, uh, if I understand correctly, uh, from China-Russia's perspective. And China-Russia, they argued that this resolution wasn't the United States genuinely trying to help solve the crisis in Venezuela, but rather a way to increase the chance for a regime change and using the Security Council um, kind of legitimize this uh, coup d'etat attempt, that, uh, as Russia and China calls it. Russia and China have argued that uh, the 2018 Venezuelan election was legitimate and that it isn't up to the UN and the Council to demand new elections, but rather it's up to the people of Venezuela to deal with it without international pressure. In my opinion, what, what Russia and China are ignoring with this criticism is that the opposition in Venezuela is facing a rather harsh and brutal regime that isn't exactly easy to deal with for the opposition. I think that without any pressure from the international community, the status quo will most likely remain. And that is a status quo which is most likely better for Russia and China and better for Russia and China's national interest. I mean, like a new government could be much more U.S. friendly. For me. However, what it what this all boils down to, as it often does, concerning clashes between the U.S., Russia, and China, is that Russia and China have argued for and supported um, a non-interventionist strategy concerning different conflicts. Uh, you see this also, of course, with Syria and, and Myanmar. And this has to do with they they regard the principle of the principle of sovereignty that a nation is sovereign and other states shouldn't be involved in their internal affairs uh, and territorial integrity to be more important than outside involvement, even I would say in face of mass atrocity crimes. And even now to really give a, an answer to your question is that even if the U.S. draft resolution did not specify any concrete action towards Venezuela, 
uh, Russia and China still argues that it's not up to the council to come up with statements about how the crisis should be solved, as they argue that it's a matter for domestic jurisdiction and, and only up to the Venezuelan people to, to solve it, and that any outside interference, even just a statement, could, could lead to kind of deepen the crisis. And in, in one way, on, on this point of um, uh, principle of sovereignty, I, I would say that, I mean, Russia and China, they do have a point that, of course, the principle of sovereignty is important. It's like a cornerstone for the whole UN project. But I think it's also important to remember that a nations, that nation states can't, they can't always hide from scrutiny from the international community by referring to its sovereignty. There are limits to to the nation's sovereignty, and I'm not saying that this this threshold for foreign intervention or foreign involvement in any way has necessarily been re- reached in Venezuela. Um, but if it is, the international com- commun- community can't just ignore it and refer to it as a domestic problem um, that shouldn't be shouldn't be dealt with. And one reason why I think China and Russia are so fierce defenders of this non-interventionist path, even so they even stopped this kind of statement for the Security Council, and, and overall uh, very skeptical of any type of interference from that side of a sovereign state, is that both Russia and China themselves, uh, themselves have problems with, for example, human rights abuses uh, in their countries, and they do not want to see that the new norm is that the UN can intervene when a nation state suppresses its own population, as this could lead to um, problem for yeah or interference in their own countries. So, in conclusion, I would say that the US thinks that outside involvement will will ease the crisis, while Russia and China thinks that outside involvement would increase the violence and the crisis. And I also want to add really briefly that the U.S. isn't either a big supporter of intervention when interventions when it comes to countries they are allied with. Uh, so it's not only Russia and China. And also this resolution that was, I mean, Russia also put forward a resolution that didn't re- reach the, the threshold for being adopted as a resolution. But I would say both Russia, Russia's and the United States resolution were very overly politicized. I see. So, uh, and now it has been about eight months or, or even a bit more, uh, actually, since uh, the most recent veto before these two vetoes uh, came about. And after a record-breaking 2017 in terms of the number of vetoes cast, uh, we seem to be back at a, a more typical level of vetoes per year, starting in 2018 and, and uh, as long as we can see now. Uh, what do you think is is uh, causing these uh, sudden changes in the number of vetoes? I would say, like, I mean, the main reason for the record numbers of vetoes during 2017 was, of course, the war in Syria and that the permanent members failed to agree on, on how to solve it. I mean, you had Russia use its vetoes, I think it was four times uh, to block draft resolutions seeking to establish investigations of uh, chemical weapons use in Syria. Uh, but now when we're starting to see the end of the war in Syria, and also in combination with that Russia had made it clear, both in statements, but also in practice, that it will it, it will veto almost anything concerning Syria. The other member states' motivation for drafting new resolutions on Syria uh, has been heavily reduced. I think that's one reason. But what what generally affects the, the numbers of vetoes uh, is if the council is dealing with an issue where one or or more of the permanent members' national interests 
set state, I would say that that's kind of good. Yeah, that that often determines if, if there's going to be threats of vetoes or even vetoes casts. And finally, then, uh, because typically the veto drafter solutions tend to concern states within a small number of geographic areas with a vast majority of veto drafter solutions. Uh, have been concerning the Middle East. This is the first veto since the end of the Cold War uh, in which the focus is a state in South America. Is this a sign, do you believe, of controversy and intractability in the council spreading to other geographic areas, or is it just a coincidence? It's hard to say uh, to what extent we can expect to see the same unfortunate kind of council paralysis that we have seen regarding Syria, uh, if we're going to see that in other geographical areas. Concerning South America and Venezuela, it really depends on how, how the situation develops. But as a rule of thumb, if there are P5 national interests at stake, or if an ally of one of the P5 is in, is in trouble, the risk of a veto increases. And that's kind of like no matter where on, on the map it is. Of course, there's often some correlation between how close the geographical area is to one of, of the P5. I mean, if you look at Syria, for example, it's rather close to, to Russia. But, but then you also have other examples such as Israel, where, where the U.S. is vetoing often, like a, a lot of the U.S. vetoes is the majority of them. Uh, and, and that's not really close geographically to, to the U.S. So again, I would say as long as, as there's like any of the permanent members' national interest at stake, then, then unfortunately we, uh, we see a lot of vetoes. That's one of the reasons really why, why like you really should work to increase the numbers of supporters for, for the initiatives to limit the veto because this is clearly like undermining the legitimacy of the council. All right. Thank you very much, Oscar. And in regards to the uh, stop legitimate vetoes coding of these vetoes, we have found no evidence that the draft resolution in question constituted a direct threat to the security or sovereignty of Russia or China. And we have therefore codified both vetoes as illegitimate. And you can find more information about stop illegitimate vetoes on our Facebook page, Twitter, and of course, on our webpage, stopillegitimatevetoes.org, uh, where you will also find more about our coding of the vetoes as well as the, our report. And we will be back uh, again if and when there is a new veto in the Security Council. Thank you and goodbye.